And I actually think that I am reborn into suffering many times a day. And I actually, uh, I actually escape from suffering many times a day. That my mind is, I, I you know, it's different for everybody, but I feel my mind really on the verge of being annoyed and, or, you know. Uh, <laughs> I mean, uh, really, when you think about it, this is so trivial. But I, I can find myself riding along on the freeway and uh, there, there suddenly is too much traffic and I'm going to be late for uh, an appointment that where I've been waiting three months for this appointment because you have to wait for a long time for certain appointments. And I'm suddenly going to be late and I get a little bit agitated and I look around and I think to myself, look at this. One person in each car, everybody should carpool. This is ridiculous. Look at the freeway. It's all clogged up. Can't get anywhere. Carbon footprint. Everything we're you know, be spoiling the earth. And I'm alone in my car. You know, it's it's that bizarre that the mind can start to you know have a snit about things, rather than to think to itself, "Here I am in my car. Look at this. I hope I'm not late. Good thing I have a phone. I can phone up. I can say I'll be there five minutes later." They can say, too bad, you can't come. Five minutes later, you don't have it. They'll make me another appointment. There are other ways for the mind to do rather than the way that it uh, often does, which is find fault with the situation and then find fault with myself, editorialize. Once again, you left too late. You should have figured it out. You shouldn't have talked long on the phone. You should have this, you should have that. I didn't. Whatever I should have, I didn't do it already. It's a done deal. So that... But but to be able to train the mind into what are the habits of my mind that lead to suffering and what don't. And so really what I wanted to talk about a little bit is that particular line, but the line before it about holding to fixed views. And I wanted to start this way. I wanted to give you some time to talk, and I had some things to talk about. But I wanted to... I, I told you a little bit about the conference that I went to um, the organization that uh, puts it together is called Mind and Life. They are uh, made up of uh, scientists, neuroscientists, uh, neurobiologists, physicists, mathematicians who study the circuitry of the brain. Uh, a year or so ago, a little bit more, it's probably two years, uh, there was an issue of... Um, the National Geographic, with a monk on the cover. Did you remember seeing it? And it looked like he was having a permanent wave. You know that. You know the old, old permanent wave. When people got a permanent wave for their hair, forty years ago, their whole head got covered with tiny little curlers all over the place, and they were attached to wires. I suppose I never had a permanent wave, but I think they did. But all these little curlers all over the head. And they crimped up the hair, and then it was permanently waved. So here are these uh, monks in what looks like a permanent wave setup. But what it is is a cap with all these um, um, electrodes all over it, which fits on kind of like a bathing cap, and is attached to machinery that can read all of the different brainwave circuitry and uh, there are a, a substantial number of laboratories now in the country that are doing research on what happens when you meditate, actually. 
that started, all of this research started actually in the 1950s. I remember being part of um, uh, one of the beginning experiments in, 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 uh, in, uh, in Kansas at the Menninger Clinic in the late 1950s, but they didn't have nearly as uh, extensive or elaborate kind of testing equipment. Uh, so what this was at this conference was one after another people presenting their findings on their on their experiment, what they did, what they tested, and what they found. And one of the things that I noted is that uh, one of the sequelae of this scientific revolution in attention training, uh, in addition to the uh, meditation attention training that we've been doing all these years, is it will refine the words that we use so that um, if you read meditation books, they're likely to give anecdotal reports where someone will say, I was on a retreat and on the fourth day of the retreat I felt my heart open. So you think to yourself, and you know, I could read right over that and not think about what on earth does that mean, you know. If you were an editor in a publishing company, you would write in the margin, what does this mean, the heart open, you know. Sounds like a catastrophe or you know, something <laughs> might happen. You know, uh, or I felt my heart soften, you know. What does that mean? Uh, but, you know, we're used to that. We were, Someone said my heart opened, I was filled with joy. What does that mean, filled how, you know, that... Uh, um, I looked at my lunch and I felt grateful. People say that. You know, and normally many people say a blessing before they eat uh, as part of their life training or as part of their decision to live a life. But it's different to say that, you know, da 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 eat, or to look at it and say, wow, look at that. I'm eating. You know, it's an amazing thing to eat, really. First of all, there are people who don't have the wherewithal to have a meal. Many more people than you know, half the world does not have today the money to eat tomorrow. They have to work every day. In order to eat, they have to get the money that day to eat. Maybe not half. Used to be half, maybe a little less. I'm not sure. A lot of people cannot be sure about eating tomorrow. I, in my life, have never been not sure about eating tomorrow. I think that's probably true for most of us. Uh, so to have a plate of food, to have a plate of beautiful food that's really presented in a lovely way, to have, to be living in a place where you can sit down to eat the food, completely sure that nothing terrible is going to happen to you while you're eating. You don't have to eat it fast. You don't have to protect it. You don't have to hide it. You can enjoy it. That you can see it, that you can smell it, that all of your stuff, your eyes and your nose still work that you have an appetite for it. You know, my friends who have taken ill and my friends who have died said, you know, I remember um, a, lot, a couple of times this happened with women friends of mine who said, you know, I tried so hard in my life to be thin. I was always trying to lose weight, you know. And now, you know, I can't eat anything. Nothing looks good. Nothing tastes good. So the fact is that you can sit down and have a plate of food and have it look good and smell good and feel like eating it is a miracle because it means that you're still alive and you can do it and you're not sick at this moment. 
And if you think about it, I think that it certainly comes up in me grateful. You know how I think about it sometimes? If I walk down a flight of stairs and I find that I have not reached out to hold the handrail, I say, ah, I'm still walking down the stairs without holding a handrail. I didn't think that 10 years ago, that, you know, I'm, I'm not holding the handrail, but 10 years ago I didn't think about not holding the handrail. Now I think that's a miracle that I can do this still. Uh, you know, a two-year-old can't do that, and an 82-year-old can't do that, really, uh, because the balance gets off. But in between, I think to myself, I want to have more stairways. I'll walk down without holding a handrail. Maybe I should hold the handrail just to be safe. Don't be stupid about this. Hold the handrail. You know, I pay a lot of attention while I'm not holding the handrail. I'm paying attention to not holding the handrail. But to said, look, it's still working. That's amazing, you know. Praise be, look what can happen. But you have to be awake to know that. And the moment of gratitude is a moment of real pleasure. That's a moment. You can't be grateful in the future. You know, or, or even if you're grateful for the past, if you look back and you say, wow, I've really had a blessed life, I am grateful. The, grateful, the gratitude is happening in this moment, not in that past moment. And gratitude, I think, is the perhaps the biggest uh, antidote to depression or despair or anger. And say, this is enough. I am grateful. That's another, actually, expression of the word dana is gratitude. You know, that I, it's enough. I have enough. I can share because I have enough in this moment. So a lot of this, I, uh, you know, my heart opened, I am grateful. Uh, people become, by their own anecdotal uh, accounts, more tolerant as they, uh, as, for instance, I know this the most by people who sit on, at a retreat for five days, three days, a week. They say, you know, I was walking along and suddenly out of the blue I thought to myself, you know, my father was really terrible, but... You know, given his background, he couldn't have been different. And then they say the strangest thing was, I wasn't thinking about my father. I was just walking along, minding my business. And suddenly, into my mind came the thought that my poor father couldn't have done things differently. He was a prisoner of his upbringing, and his father, and his father, and his father. And it wasn't like at that moment that suddenly came to them that information that he was, or she was my mother or whatever, or that person who assaulted me or offended me. They couldn't have done differently. We actually had all those pieces. We didn't get new knowledge in that moment, but we get new insight in that moment. It's as if the same knowledge shuffles itself around and presents itself in a way that you didn't get it before. And of all the experiments, and people showed all these graphs and they told these experiments and they were all exciting and so interesting. I, if, I could have, if I could have thought fast enough, I would have written them down all fast enough. I was doing everything I could do to think fast enough to keep up with them. You know, parenthetically, I'm going to come back to the tolerant. But they had 30-minute spaces to give their presentations. And every, once, every day, there was one, I guess, 45-minute space where everybody had 90 seconds Everybody who wanted to say, who wasn't a regular speaker with a 30-second slot, uh, got up and had, one th- had 90 seconds 
to press a button on the computer, get a slide on the screen, and say, the experiment that I'm doing is da 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 and it's meant to prove this, and I've got so-and-so temporary tentative results that seem to show this, that, and the other, and I'll be glad to meet you downstairs in the auditorium where I have a poster of this slide. Come meet me near that poster, and I'll tell you more material. Okay, thank you. <laughs> Sit down. The next one. 90-second intervals. People got up and told their work. And at the end of it, you feel, ah, I can't stand up. But it's very exciting very, what people are doing. I was thrilled to be there. But the one experiment that I absolutely remember, so I'm going to tell it to you. Also, not only I remember it, but it really struck me. That's probably why I remember it. They showed uh, their experiment was people were uh, given a, a picture to look at, a slide. And it was a square, and it was divided into nine boxes. And it had a, a picture in the middle box. It had an image. And then, not in every single other box, but in several of the other boxes, it had other images, maybe uh, a face and uh, another face over here and an apple and three bananas or some uh, other things in other boxes. <coughs> and they showed people the slides and, and people reported what they saw. Maybe they had a series of slides that they showed and the people reported what they saw. After the first go-through, people were given instructions in the practice of mindfulness. And I don't know how long, whether they practiced just that one time or they practiced for a week and came back. I'm not clear. But they did practice in mindfulness probably that one time, like a half hour of sitting and bringing the attention moment to moment to what's happening right now, right now, right now. Then they showed the same slides, and they uniformly saw more. They saw what was in the middle, and they saw what was in some of these other boxes as well. So they quite literally had a larger picture of the situation. They, could, they had more facts were available to them than the predominating fact. Uh, and the relationship that I take away from that, that they were suggesting, but it seems clear to me, is that what happens to me when I either re-meet or rethink of, so I meet in my mind, somebody that offended me or uh, hurt me in some way so that I think of, or that I think I don't like for some reason, uh, and I think of that person, there's kind of a narrowing down of the mind. It hones in on, uh-oh, there is this person that I don't like. And then if my mind could relax, so to speak, I would remember that this person I don't like had a difficult background and a different background and is really does extraordinary things in their life and has made a big difference. There are other mitigating factors, like the walking along and saying, all of a sudden it came to me that my father had a difficult life as well. He couldn't be different. That you have more facts to judge your opinion on. So they, 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 they said that they really used the words... The broader a view you have, the more your view of things is refined and the more accurate your perception is of how things are. And I, I, I really found that so remarkable. Do you like that? Maybe I got overexcited about it, but I thought that was marvelous in terms of fixed views. I get a view... Not my representation of how things are. Because actually someone was telling me this also, that if someone 
if I remember something from my childhood, and then someone tells me a story about it, maybe my father says, I remember the first day you went to uh, kindergarten, you said X, Y, and Z, and then uh, you, did, you did or didn't want to go in the door or whatever. I'm making this one up because I actually went to the kindergarten happily. But, but someone tells you a story about it, and then you have the story about it, and you have the memory of it. And the chances are that you're going to remember the story about it and not your memory about it because someone has told it to you in words now and you write it down in your memory in words and you remember the memory. And you can't tell whether you remember the memory or the story about it. And then the more you tell it, it's very interesting to me. Or we forget things out of our mind. My, my college roommate, who's my lifelong friend, We'll say, remember the time we did da-da-da together? I said, no, I don't. Remember we went to this and we did that and we met so-and-so. It's quite a long memory. We went to such-and-such a party or something. Zero. Zero. But it's not that I don't remember my whole experience with her. And I could tell her a lot of stories about remember the time you went with me here and there and there. And, And have her not remember it. It's very interesting how we remember... Only parts of stories, representations of stories, and not all of them. And we make an opinion about it. I like this. I don't like this. This is good. This is not good. And the idea of changing a view based on what people tell you. This, I, I, the, the hypothetical story, I guess I learned somewhere along the line, maybe in a social work school, where... Uh, the the example was several of you are school teachers, so you have a child who's the one child in the class who is difficult to have in the class, and on the days that that child isn't there, everything is better. You know that that when they're there, there's more turmoil and more upset, and they annoy, and they don't look that tidy, and they didn't come dressed that well, and. They make a little havoc in their corner of the room or whatever. And in and the people who choose to teach school are generally people who love young people and they have the best motives. They want things to go well. And it's even a an, an ego-alien thought because if they let themselves know that they actually don't like this person, they come, you know, it looks like they're not here. You think, oh, they're not here, and then they come in a little bit late. And you think, oh, they are here, you know that, and then you don't you don't like you don't like to think that because it's not nice, you know. But uh, but the truth is, the mind that is, is is completely immoral. It thinks anything it wants to, including a lot of ignoble thoughts, which we tend to notice more, I think, than the noble thoughts because they they affront us, you know. Oh, look what I just thought, but it's too late to unthink it. You know, we we think plenty of lovely thoughts every day, and we don't censor them. It's the ignoble ones that light up the mind. Whoa! So you don't like this child, and then you feel tense. Uh-oh. And then someone comes at some point, maybe the, uh, the your department chair or somebody, or last year's teacher of that person, and says, you know, last year this child's. Uh, younger sister died of leukemia or well, people don't die of leukemia anymore, died of something. Or last year, this person's father left home mysteriously or their parents had a divorce 
or uh, something else happened. And some, you have another piece of information about this child, and they're still the same child, and they behave the same way. But you have an extra piece of information, so you don't behave the same way towards them. You don't see them the same way, and it changes them. So I, I began to think about the idea of, of how being uh, available through practices that make the mind alert to peripheral information, how, in fact, we help ourselves and help other people because we keep refining the view of them so that it becomes... That's a little bit of a vague description, so I want to, I want to tell you actually an interest... Which one will I do? about view. <laughs> I just read uh, What Happened by Scott McLennan. McLellan. Scott McLellan. So I bought it in the airport in New York the other day because I had a long ride and I read it. And uh, I, I actually thought it would be more... Um, because it, 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 you know that Scott McLellan is a person who was the press secretary to President Bush for a long time. And I thought it would be more of a polemic and more, um, more uh, irate uh, one way or the other. And actually, it's a very thoughtful book. It's very, the tone of it is quite quiet and thoughtful. And I found myself curiously... Um, uh, moved and affected by it. Uh, uh, fundamentally, I don't know what I expected Scott McClellan to be like, but I mean, it's not a secret here. The, the 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 current the current government establishment is not one that I uh, voted for, so I've had some difficulties, and I'm constrained, at, personally constrained, because it's not my business to use this as a pulpit. And also it's against the law for me to tell you my politics. But uh, I was interested in reading from the point of view of someone who met uh, George Bush when he was governor of Texas. Scott McClellan's mother was a, was a politician in Texas since his whole entire life. And he grew up living in politics. His mother was the mayor of their town and a congresswoman in Texas, and he ran her campaigns. He has four brothers, all of whom were passionately interested in, in government. Uh, he uh, had opportunities to meet George, George Bush when he was governor of Texas, and somehow got uh, 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 jobs working for him as an, as an aide and then as an assistant press secretary, and because he was skilled in journalistic forms, was his uh, uh, his uh, uh, press secretary talking to the press in 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 Texas, and it really talks about his being impressed with uh, the idea of spreading freedom through the world, and talks about his idealism as a young man and how he understood George Bush's philosophy as uh, being a thrilling philosophy and uh, how personally charming he found President Bush and 
how, in fact, in Texas, uh, there had been more bipartisanship in government, and he'd been very impressed with uh, George Bush in the f as he was elected for the first term in his promise to bring that same spirit of bipartisan to government and how many people had been impressed by that. And then he tells his story, and then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened. And, as, you know, if if... If, as he says, this book is completely an honest account of his account, it was a very long time before it became clear to him that he was not, that there was, what's the subtitle? Inside the Washington, inside the Bush White House and Washington's culture of deception, that there was anything untrue about what he was saying. And then his moral dilemma inside of feeling. He, his job was to support the president and um, that that was what he was hired to do and supposed to do and that he began to feel I'm not saying the truth here and how and what happened and what happened and what happened and what happened until he said I can't do this anymore this is too inconsistent with I, uh, how I feel and I, re I realized as I read it that I was very impressed with First, I'm telling you the story because I was thinking about he starts out with a particular point of view. You know, I realize I am tremendously partisan in my politics and in my political philosophy, but because I came from a family that saw the world according to a certain political philosophy and they were sure they were right. And I grew up thinking these good people are right. He also grew up thinking these good people are right. And the idea that everybody grows up can be thinking these good people are right, and they're not better than I am. They just have another lens that they're seeing through. I think to myself that my uh, my friend uh, David Zeller, also a meditation teacher, who died a couple of years ago, said uh, the practice that everyone in a position of teaching ought to do every single day, meditative practice for people in a teaching position, is they should meditate every day for at least 10 minutes on the mantra I could be wrong. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's a really, it's an amazing thing. You know? yeah, because I, the, we tend not to think so. I could be wrong, but I'm not. You know, I, uh, you know, I, really. Everybody knows that the good people believe this, and those other people, they're the selfish people. But I could be wrong, you know. So reading this, I, th I actually thought that a few times. We could both be right. This is a good time to tell the old Sufi story. That's uh, a meditation story, so it makes it relevant to this class. Jack tells this story a lot of uh, a, uh, a uh, how does it wait wait wait? Two people come to the Sufi master. I, I guess maybe, maybe they are. Um, Anyway, two people, they're related somehow. Maybe they're, maybe they're, anyway, two people come to a Sufi master with a dispute. Uh, and, uh, well, I was going to say a man and a wife, but nowadays I'm happy to say in California you could be a man and a husband. So, but anyway, in the Sufi story, two people come to the Sufi master with a grievance. And one of the person one describes this whole, his or her, whole point of view and uh, the Sufi master says I think you're right 
And then the second person describes their point of view. And the Sufi master says, I think you're right. And um, the assistant to the Sufi master leans over and says to him, Master, you know, you just said they came with a dispute for you to resolve. And you said they're both right. He said, you're right too. You know, that, 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 so that, you know, that, you know, right is always in the eye of the beholder. So it was very good for me because he was so personally appealing. I was feeling like he was my own child. Really, I was reading like a murder mystery because I, I was feeling like he was my own child. And I was so upset that he had been beguiled and was now being disillusioned because you can feel his tremendous pain and the disillusionment. Robin, what? I, I heard an interview with him on the podcast. Like um, Larry just told me, he's speaking at the, at the Commonwealth Club today at noon, mm-hmm. and that's always on, what, 88.5 FM. Uh-huh. want to hear him speaking. I was also so moved. Very moved. I, yeah. Go ahead. Make a comment about what you said before. Yeah. When, when um, at the conference you were presented with this fact that um, certitude and that old story about how when we, we speak our story so over and over again, we become that story mm. and the limitations that that presents us with. Yeah. And I was also reminded by that book called Water that was written by that Japanese scientist yeah, yeah. who freezes yeah, yeah, the water yeah. mm-hmm. that, um, that one carries with positive intention. And those crystals, they're singing, they're gorgeous. Yeah. And, and when, when he held the water and had um, unclean thoughts, unkind thoughts, the, each one of those crystals looked crippled. Yeah. And so, you know, how our, our headset is so impactful not only for ourselves, but for the yeah. others around us, for yeah. the as well. Yeah, yeah. No, this is, a, this is a very important point, and I see that we're, we're not going to be able to finish this whole list of things. We'll finish next week, because I want, really, for you all to do this as an experiment with me all week. Like, for instance, um, people will say, uh, when I'm driving along and listening to the news, and they say, well, now we hear from so-and-so, and people will say, I turn off the radio because I can't bear to hear it, you know. That is because, you know, all of a sudden we have a view of, uh-oh. I, I know, And I think, actually, I don't want to say the whole answer. Well, I do obviously want to say the whole answer. That's why I'm going on. <laughs> but, you know, I think it has a lot to do with we get frightened. If I think, aha, I'm now going to hear from so-and-so, who I think I'm, who I think, uh, whose views I don't share, and who I would be frightened if they were in charge, then it's that the, the mind says, I don't want to hear from this. Um, I hope that that's not a, um, probably it is, an elaboration of my mind is made up, don't confuse me with facts. Um, one of my friends, one of your friends, uh, Tony um, Bernhard, who comes to teach here, uh, often when it's not me or Donald. Tony will be here this summer. He has a... We talk about this all the time, he and I. One of his practices is listening to talk radio of the kind that he doesn't agree with. And he says, I, you know, when I leave my uh, place of work and it takes me 20 minutes to get to the freeway 
and I tried to see, I switch on so-and-so, blank, blank, whose views I don't agree with, and I try to see if I can get all the way to the freeway without becoming annoyed. <laughs> and, uh, and you have to, and in order to do that, you have to think a lot about a. I could be wrong, uh, and b. Uh, probably this person isn't a terrible person. Maybe they uh, taught their grandchild how to ice skate yesterday. How do I know? Maybe they visit their ailing mother every day. Maybe I don't have to vilify this whole person. Maybe this is a person who has other views but is otherwise quite a decent person. It's extremely hard for the mind not to narrow down when it's frightened onto the picture that's in the middle of the box and to remember that there's a lot of stuff around it. So I was thinking, maybe we'll, we'll start from this slot next week. I was thinking that if, if, if my goal is to have always as much information coming in as will help me make the clearest view, uh, uh, the, the fullest view, help me have the fullest view of the situation, uh, then I need to do something to have my mind, uh, first of all, focus, second of all, relax, so I'm not pushing material out of it. I have to let stuff in. I could discard material. I could say, no, actually, I, I think this isn't right. Uh, I was going to bring, I did bring it. Let's do this. I actually do have an appointment at 11.30, so I'm going to leave exactly on time. But Just to see about opinion, okay? These are two ethical questions. I, I love to read this in the Sunday New York Times Magazine. There's the ethicist. He always tells a question, and you see what your response would be. So here's you are a thirty-year thirty. Um, you're a physician, a thirty-year-old woman, a student at a local school. Came for an initial visit. Her condition was unremarkable. A few weeks later, the administrator of her school, a long-standing patient, mentioned how impressive it is that this woman continues to study despite having terminal cancer. The school even held a fundraiser to help with her medical bills. I said nothing, but must I let the school know that she does not have cancer? May I confront her about this? Hmm. 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 What do you think, Ted? Well, sure. To quote you uh, talking to your grandchildren, you said you don't have to be the police of the world. <laughs> Ted says you don't have to be the police of the world. You have to be calm not to be the police of the world, though, here. Yeah. What? There's doctor-patient confidentiality. There is doctor-patient confidentiality. So what do you do? You talk to her. Yeah, you talk to her. So she doesn't have a condition. She does no. She does not have. She's a student. She doesn't have cancer. She apparently has said she has cancer. So there was a big fun drive for her. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Wait a minute. One more. 
My son and daughter-in-law belong to a church with different beliefs from mine, and thus my new grandchildren, a few months old, were not going to be baptized. My 1950s Catholic background would not let me sleep. So I snuck them off to the laundry and, preferred pri and performed private rites. <laughs> Do I get eternal reward or eternal damnation? <laughs> what do you think? <laughs> what do you think? She's going to feel guilty for a long time. Huh? You want to know the answer that the ethicist says? By convening in the laundry. You have make, may have taken too literally the idea of baptism as washing away of sin. I hope your private rights did not include the spin cycle. You will receive neither eternal reward nor eternal damnation, but you might face eternal resentment if your son and daughter-in-law discover what you've been up to. They might well consider the religious guidance of their children to be a parental prerogative. For anyone to intervene, even a well-intentioned family member, might confuse the kids, even if they, are, if they are old enough to recall your idiosyncratic ritual, and undermine their relationship with their parents. One ethical guideline, a, descript a, des a description of conduct that begins with I snuck is apt to raise... <laughs> is apt to raise doubts. To a secular person, an incantation whispered over an infant is harmless nonsense. But as a believer, you should be aware that Catholicism regards baptism as a sacrament to be performed by a priest, except in an emergency, when anyone may step in. But emergency is generally held to mean the imminent death of the child, not a doctrinal dispute with the parents. So, anyway, he's, a very, he's very good, Randy, but... Uh, what I want to tell you is that I read you that at the end just to tell you that the, that, um, the idea of having enough information so that you can make a balanced decision so that you feel consistent with the decisions that you make. So if they don't come back, somebody said you're going to feel an eternal guilt. You know, maybe. But so that you have clarity about it. And the, and, the, and the one piece that comes after the clarity, which I really want to take up next week, is that having clarity, we know what to do next. This is the part, I think, that is most crucial to us as, again, if we go back to talking about the karmapa in the beginning, saying the point is to do something right now. The idea is when our minds are clear enough and we have a clear enough view with all the pieces in there of what's going on, we know what to do. I'll show you one more picture uh, which is out of the same New York Times magazine, I think. Where is it? Um, wait, wait, wait. No, no. It's Here it is. It's out of Ode, which is a new magazine uh, with uplifting stories. Here's a young boy who's a ninth grader who, uh, having heard that uh, the future of uh, the Earth was imperiled at age 11... He read a newspaper article about e-waste, toxic chemicals from discarded computers that leach into groundwater and soil. He said, I didn't even know that was a problem, but I thought we could do something about it. 
So he's done a lot with friends. He founded the Westerly Innovations Network, testified in favor of a proposed state law to prohibit computers from being dumped in the garbage. When that failed, he and his friends wrote their own version of the bill, which passed as a local ordinance in Westerly, has been approved by the Rhode Island legislature. It goes into effect in August, and et cetera, et cetera. It goes on to tell about how you should recycle computers. And I think the point of this all uh, that we've talked about this morning about having a mind that's able to take in information and see it in the clearest way is that we could then make a difference out of it and make a different world. So for all the people who are visiting from Madison or from wherever, thank you very much for visiting and have a safe journey home. For all the school teachers who have joined us for the summer, welcome back and we'll see you next week. For everybody else, welcome back. May the uh, merit that we accrue from having been here this morning and studied together and sat together and hoped together that we could change our hearts and change the world be given freely for the well-being of all beings everywhere. May all beings be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering. If any of you are of the rallying persuasion, there is in San Rafael tonight at 7 o'clock in the little green area on 4th Street by the Bank of America, a uh, rally in support of the people of Tibet because the torch is going back to Lhasa and this week. And, uh, so there are a number of speakers from Tibet and Burma for anyone who is interested. For anybody who possibly doesn't know that that's Jack Cornfield, these are the people from Madison. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.